Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 37. Our look at cirrhosis patients and their needs. Cirrhosis patients have long been a special focus for this podcast due to the fact that they are the most imperiled of all NASH patients and have the shortest time to decompensation and other severe health events. This concluding conversation continues focus on human system issues, on what we can learn from studies, and where we will have the greatest impact now. The final question in which I ask each panelist to comment on one place that their individual work touches this system yields an interesting and diverse set of answers, ranging from better patient care to better diagnostics to, hey, more money will come into the system when drugs get approved. Listen and see what you think. In the absence of new drugs, this conversation focuses on the pincer movement of improving patient communication and engagement on one flank and producing superior disease models, liquid biomarkers, and new drugs on the other. The interplay of the two sets of needs creates an interesting dynamic in its own right. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. What we're going to be talking about today is cirrhosis. We had an episode last summer on cirrhosis that was extremely well received. We've come back to it a couple of times since then with different casts of characters. And there was a cirrhosis late breaker with semaglutide at ILC a couple of weeks ago, which Jorn is an author. And one of the many one-on-one conversations Lars and I have had that for technical reasons have not made it onto this program was actually about some of the things that he is doing and, and, and they are developing to study and evaluate cirrhosis. So I think this should be a fascinating conversation. And I'm excited to listen. Louise and I have decided we know how to ask questions, and that's probably all we need to do. Jaren Schattenberg. My experience is that even if they pick up hepatic steatosis, if that's not the question of the exam, it might not be reported. So I think this comes back to education again. Lars Johansson. Yeah. No, we actually already published the baseline data from those 30,000 subjects from CT data looking at the liver steatosis, but now we're also mining it for other effects on the, see if we can find uh, fibrosis. And uh, well, we, we're not collecting biopsies in this study, but we are getting the outcome. So I think that's really helpful. Yeah, that's the future. We don't want biopsies, we want outcomes. Congratulations. If you can get directly to outcomes, obviously that's a huge step in the right direction and also makes it a lot more serviceable for patients in day-to-day care. Louise, you've made great contributions and then you've gone back on mute. So why don't you, if you have anything you want to share, why don't you, as we get towards the bottom of the hour, why don't you come on out and, and share? Louise Campbell. I agree with everything the guys have said. All of these techniques are fantastic. They're marvelous. But if you can't get the patient to the appointment because the letter doesn't get there, we miss the opportunities. So we do still have to look at how we get to those patients how we communicate better, how we look at the basic systems that in some respects obstruct our ability to use all of this great technology or cost effective. If you it takes two, two or three appointments to get you to your CT because you don't get the information, that's three times the cost to get the one test. It's blocked the other slots. So it is a big resource. All of it is very exciting. We're getting closer and closer to the best diagnostics, but we're still failing to get the right people to those diagnostics. So we need to pin some movement, as I think you said a little bit earlier, but we need to remember the fundamental part of what we do is trying to get people there. We tend to focus a little bit on the high range technologies, but we need to get those people detected in the best way, but we need to make sure that they're there. And we, We're struggling at that end 
a little bit more than we probably should do. And that's where I'd like to see health systems better engaged because we can start to provide the education if we can get to those patients to get to this high-end technology and better outcomes earlier and look at how these drugs work in them. So you would think that on a per capita basis, that's lower investment, but it's harder to find the people who are going to make it. Because you're investing in higher-end technology, people know how they're going to get their money back out of their investment, and you can get private investors to do that. When you're talking about doing a better job of getting phone calls returned or creating greater throughput within healthcare systems, then the spend is lower, but the people willing to spend the money and having the will to do what they've got to do to get it right just might not be quite so self-evident. You was that? I, I thought I saw you nodding while I was talking. Was that what you were nodding at? Yeah, I am thinking of these everyday hurdles where we lose patients at all different levels of the track. And this would be a, to, to just apply the number of tests that we have now and have a consequent follow-up of patients, that, that's a hurdle. But the implementation of new technologies will help us here. I think uh, um, that, that's my take of this conversation part. All right. So we're kind of at the bottom. We are at the bottom of the hour. So let me ask a question kind of on the way to wrapping up, which is this conversation is a little bit like a Rashomon in to say in to say that we each touch the system in very different places, all four of us. So I'm wondering if each of us could talk about one place where we touch the system, where we see an exciting opportunity for progress and what it is, and then a place where someone else is touching the system, something that's not exactly what we do every day, but where we're also excited about the potential for progress. Brave one, go first. I'll be brave. I suppose on the areas where I touch the system or where the system touches me, it's very much that engagement with the patients to get them through the door and to get the best test at the right patient for the right time. And the area that I think is undermined is, we have touched on it, is this whole inability to to put a receptionist into something at a small cost because somebody's fighting for that type of money, whereas you just get a few DNAs or did not attend to a CT scan and MRI, you'd have covered the salary for that month or the two months and multiple patients times over. So it's where we see the funding going in is not necessarily in the right place. That excites me because if we get that right, we get people to these right tests. For me, looking at the volume of the liver, looking at the volume of the spleen, that does excite me. We see patients report right upper quadrant pain with normal liver enzymes who feel better as pressures come down. So they report the changes and, and measuring those is important. So that area excites me, but we need to be able to get to the right patient at the right test at the right time. And sometimes we're trying to <laughs> jump hurdles to do that. And we've got great tests coming. We've got some good tests that could be used better if we can get the right patient, the right test at the right time. So I've been thinking a lot about how I could uh, educate my, my peers on liver disease and identifying those um, compensated cirrhotic patients, you know, starting with primary care physicians, but in particular the endocrinologists or the radiologists, as I post my questions to Lars, do a CT scan, identify a nodular liver, but do not describe this because this was not the question of the scan. And uh, while I do not want to imply not good practice here, I think it's something that happens. We're very focused on certain, you know, we've called it siloed in the past, certain aspects. I I think I'd like to see advancements in, in terms of, let's say, a recognition of dangerous signals by either automated algorithms, technologies, spin-off things like Lars has developed. And I agree with him that the technologies they're looking at are in the drug development space. But I think if you know, if you slim them down, if you if you like take version 0.1 of that and, and, and you can implement it into a clinical setting, you'll 
probably still gain knowledge and uh, be able to risk stratify better. And as such, I think the advancement in that arena would be very exciting to me. Yeah, I, I think we, we touched upon it before. I, I think actually some of what I'm I'm very excited about is the larger scale trials and the ability to pool data because there will there is so much that is measured and to dig out the best simplest affordable tests with best risk prediction. I think that's uh, an area we will see a lot of development in the coming years. And obviously it requires collaboration between companies. I mean, you can pool baseline data and you can pool placebo group data to really dig out the, this. Uh, I think we will. it's a great resource for development of these uh, affordable tests for these patients, which has to be, you, you need it, um, but and they can't be too complicated. That's my that's my note take on that. So, Lars, my mind went in two directions, and one of them was exactly the one you just articulated. And the other one was something very different, which is that if one of the real challenges we have right now is figuring out how to educate the healthcare system on how to identify, manage, and treat patients better, the way that tends to get solved is drugs get approved. And when drugs get approved, investment money comes in, right? I mean, Stephen was talking about that last week in the context of if you actually get, if, if Regenerate 2 means that you might actually get Oka and Resmeteron to the market by the end of 2023, that will just open the gates to all kinds of education to everybody in the entire process, patients, advocates, providers, nurses, doctors, specialists, everyone, that we will have the effect of dialing up salience and moving matters more top of mind. And then it'll be easier for everyone to do the right thing and know what they're supposed to do. The, the real augment that I see coming out of work like yours, you said this before, if we could find a simple way to go back to the basic science, things like this is something that turns down fibrogenic activity or this is something that turns down a stellate cell or whatever, in, in a simple way that we could educate people on what that meant and why, then I think you'd conclusively, you'd have all your pieces in place. You'd have the funds to educate. You'd have the motivation to educate. You'd have an understanding on the part of people that um, we can do something to help patients. And then you'd have a simple way to start to articulate the basic science around it. Louise, that would be my, that would be my version of the uh, patient-centric pincer movement, if you will, as compared to the commercially-centric pincer movement. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingthenash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami on Wednesday, July 27th. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.